Let's pray. Father, would you speak to us right now in a way that we can understand? Holy Spirit, would you change our lives? Would you change the, the, our wrong thinking, the, th the ways that we think about you in incorrect ways? And Lord, we want to want you. Some of us are here because we, we know we're supposed to want you. We don't even know how. But Lord, would you put that desire in our heart? We can't even make ourselves strong enough to desire you. We need that from you. So we're asking right now that you'd help us to desire you that you'd help us to be good at loving you. Speak to us, oh God. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, guys, remember what book we've been studying? This is a Bible study. Remember we're studying through the book of? Luke, thank you. we got two Lukes here tonight, and, and we're studying the book of Luke. Uh, we're almost at the end of the book. We're getting close to the time when Jesus is put to death. This is a couple days before he dies. And we're in the end of chapter 20. We're going to end up chapter 20 and start in chapter 21. Is that okay? Okay. So chapter 20, verse 45. And once again, as I often say, the, the verses are up here. But you are going to, if you want to grow, if you guys really want to know the Bible, you got to bring your Bible. Seriously. If you don't have one or if you don't have money, if you don't have money, get one. I'll buy you. I'll give you the money and I'll buy you a hamburger too. Um, but if, if, you, if, you, if you guys need a Bible, we'll get you one. But it's going to make a lot more difference in your life if you actually bring the Bible here. Okay, so verse, um, chapter 20, verse 45, Jesus is in the temple. We've, the past few weeks we've been talking about what Jesus has been teaching us. These thousands and thousands of people have gathered around him in the temple and he's teaching them. So in verse 45, he says, it says this. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues. That's, those are like meeting houses, Bible study houses. They like to have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets and parties. They devour widows' houses, and for a show, they make lengthy prayers. Such men, and women, by the way, will be punished most severely. Chapter 21. As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich, rich people putting their gifts in the temple treasury, this box that is kind of like what we have at Grace, except this was a bigger box. People, people put their, their gifts, their money gifts in there. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty and out of her nothingness, put in all that she had to live on. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. Okay, we're going to stop right there. We're going to talk about what this means. We're going to, start with, we're going to kind of work backwards. We're going to start with what the disciples were saying about the temple. Because I want you guys to understand kind of what's going on here. It's going to be helpful if you understand the context. So uh, we, I think we've got a picture of temple up here, um, kind of a diagram. The temple is no longer there, if you guys didn't know. But this is about what the temple looked like. If you guys notice over here, this is, this is the temple here, and the smoke is coming from the altar. This is the Antonia Fortress, which was a fortress uh, that was uh, where the, the Romans kept watch over Jerusalem, okay? But this is the temple that we're talking about. I think there's another uh, diagram there. Okay, this is, this is probably what it looked like um, up closer. Uh, you guys notice this is the outer court. This is where Jesus is teaching. He's out here teaching. Um, and there's, this, this place is jam-packed. 
you just, uh, this is a couple days before Passover. Passover swelled at the time of, uh, the Jerusalem swelled at the time of Passover, not with thousands of people or with tens of thousands of people, but with hundreds of thousands of people that came to Jerusalem for the Passover. So you just got to get the picture here that this place is jam-packed. Everybody's trying to get their sacrifice done by Passover time, okay? So Jesus is in here, and he's teaching the people. And let me, let me just kind of give you a history of what's, what's... This temple is important. It's easy to miss what's going on, what Jesus is teaching us here at the Cornerstone through this, but it'll help you if you understand what, the history of the temple. So this spot right here was first, is first mentioned in the Bible. Does anybody remember where? Okay, if you go all the way back to Genesis... Actually, might be, remember last week we talked about Melchizedek, the king of Salem? So that's probably this spot. But the next place that it's really talked about specifically is, does anybody know? No, it's still in Genesis. Something happened at this spot, Mount Moriah. I don't know if you guys realize that Mount Moriah, that Mount Zion is part of the area where Mount Moriah is. What happened on Mount Moriah in Genesis 22? The binding of Isaac, where, where Abraham takes his son, his beloved son, and walks for how many days? Takes a three-day journey, puts the wood on Isaac's back. Whoops, crash. Um, puts the wood on Isaac's back and marches up this mountain to, to sacrifice his son. He doesn't understand it. He doesn't understand what God is doing. But God is doing something prophetic because at this spot, 2,000 years later, there would be another son who, would, who actually would be put to death. And, of course, the story of Abraham and Isaac is that Isaac is not put to death, but a lamb is sacrificed in Isaac's place as a picture of what would come. Okay? That's the first mention of, of that's the first place where this is really significant in the Old Testament. Then, uh, that's, that's about 2000 B.C., okay? Sometime around 2000 B.C., just round that number off. In fact, let's write these um, dates down here so that you guys um, can kind of... Remember, so that's Abraham and Isaac. Not sure if I can get that off. Okay, so then sometime around around 1000 BC, what's going on about 1000 BC at this spot? Anybody have any idea? Solomon's temple. Well, yeah. First, before Solomon's temple. Um, hey guys. Don't write on the board with that with pen that doesn't erase. Uh, <laughs> um, Solomon's. What happens at this spot? If you if you um, go to the, go to the next uh, slide, I've got a, another picture there. You guys, you've heard of the city of David, right? Remember, city of David. City of David had been. Now this is a diagram. Obviously, looks very different today. But the, the, the city of David had been. Um, this this had been Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem had been had been controlled by the Jebusites, and David snuck in through a water tunnel, which is right over here. Stunk through a water tunnel, was able to get inside the city and take over the city and made this his capital. But this up here was not city, okay? This up here was a, does anybody know what was happening up, up at where the temple was later built? It was a threshing floor. Very good. A threshing, you guys know what a threshing floor is? Yeah, because we we're not in that kind of a society. Threshing floors is, you know, if you pick the grain, you got the, the stalks of wheat, and there's little, little bits of wheat, of, there's, what do you call it? There's the stalk, and there's the grain, and you got the grain off the stalk, and you put that on the ground, and the cow walks around it, and he, as he walks on top of that, it breaks the pieces of grain off of the stalk. You guys never seen that, have you? Man, you guys need to come to the Philippines with me. Okay. 
So that, this is the, a, a guy named Aruna who's not a, a Israelite, not a Jew. He owns this piece of land. And there's a, a David sins. And we won't go through all that. That's a whole other story. But David sins. And because of the, the sin of the King David, God sends punishment on Israel, and there are 70,000 people that die. And th- what's required for the, for the plague of these 70,000 people who are dying to stop is that a sacrifice be made on this spot. And so David, he sees the angel of the Lord, and, but, and at, this, at this time, while well, this plague is going, he goes up to this top, he goes up the, the mountain from his city, Jerusalem, and he buys the threshing floor of Aruna. Okay, that's significant. And the next thing is that he, he brings the Ark of the Covenant. You guys remember the, what the Ark of the Covenant is? It's a box that, that where the, the, the presence, the, the presence of God dwelled. It was, a, it was so electrifying that nobody could touch it. He brings the box, he put, the box, he puts it up here and pitches a tent for it on top of that mountain. And he wants to build a temple at that spot. But God says, no, no, it's going to be your son who builds the temple. Okay? So who's, who's David's son? Solomon. So Solomon, he, he builds the temple up there, and there's a diagram depicting probably what, where it was facing east. This is Kidron Valley. Um, if you guys see this now, you guys have seen the pictures of the Dome of the Rock, right? That's the place where the Dome of the Rock is now. There's no temple there now. The Jews can't build a temple because there's the Dome of the Rock there, and that's a big political dilemma that they're in, but it's not a dilemma for God because God knows exactly what he's doing. So Solomon builds a temple there um, sometime around uh, um, around 9, 950 B.C., okay? So 9, 950, this is David. Then around 9, 950 B.C. is Solomon. And then that's Solomon. There we go. And then, okay, so that temple stands in Jerusalem from about 950 B.C. until when? Sorry, you guys are having to do history again. Okay, 586. Thank you. You've been in Bible Q&A, haven't you? Thank you very much. 586, 586 B.C. What happens in 586 B.C.? King Nebi. King Nebi. Yeah, that's right. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon comes for the third time and, because he's, he's already um, defeated Jerusalem, taken captives. The people rebel who are there, comes back. Defeats him again. So he, co- he comes back, and this time he wipes everybody out, and he knocks the temple to the ground, and there is nothing there. Okay? So destruction of the temple in 586 B.C. Sorry you guys are having to do a history lesson, but I hope this is helpful. You know, it, it's, it's easy for you guys to go back and read the Bible and really try to, you're trying to think, you know, what is going on here? So this is just like a, a really basic Bible timeline. Because what happens with the temple in Jerusalem has a lot of effect on what's happening around the world even today. Okay? So 586 B.C., the temple is destroyed. What's the next part of this? What happens next in the big story? We'll say it again. Okay. Well, you're getting close. Okay, what happens is 586 B.C., um, everybody's out of Jerusalem. The defeat has already happened was, um, 15 years earlier. But in 586 B.C., the, the, the temple, all the people are gone. And in 539 B.C., the Persian Empire... And the guy who, who unites the Medes and the Persians, do we have any Persians here tonight? Okay, if you, if you ever meet Persians, just ask them about Krosh, and they are like, oh, Krosh, how do you know about Krosh? Well, in the Bible, it's Cyrus. Cyrus is the, the, per, the guy who unites the Medes and the Persians, and he comes against Babylon and sneaks through the waterways, actually dams up the Euphrates River so that, that he, they can walk through the, the tunnel, the area where the water goes through the city. They defeat the king of Babylon, and that's the story in Daniel 5 of the handwriting on the wall. You guys remember? 
the handwriting of the wall. That night, King Cyrus, 539 B.C., um, Cyrus defeats the Babylonians. And the first thing, does anybody know what Cyrus is known for? Father of human rights. Father of human rights. The father of human rights because all these people that King Nebuchadnezzar, his enemy, had defeated, when Cyrus becomes king, he's like, we're going to let all those people go back to their home countries. So he sends people back to their home countries, not just the Jews. But he, he sends the Jews back. He allows the Jews to go back under a guy named Sheshbazar to build a temple in Jerusalem. Okay, so in 537 B.C., a couple of years later, Sheshbazar and a little group of people, this is most of, the peop- most of the Jews are still scattered all over the place. So this is a little group of people. They go back to Jerusalem, and they are, they've been commissioned by the emperor, Cyrus himself, to build a temple for God, for Yahweh God in Jerusalem. Okay? Is this, am I going too long on this history stuff? Is this interesting? Please nod your head one way or another. Okay. Okay. So the temple, the, the foundation of the temple is laid, and the temple is finished being built then under Zerubbabel. You guys have heard of Zerubbabel, right? And that's finished in 516 B.C., exactly 70 years after the temple is destroyed. Okay? Remember, remember the 70-year period? Okay, we're going to talk about that later at some point. There's a 70-year period that's prophesied by the prophet, first of all, by the prophet Jeremiah, okay? So, five, 516 B.C., the temple's done, and for the next 500 years, there's this little temple there uh, in Jerusalem, okay? But then, king comes along and says, we're going to make this thing look really nice now. What's that king's name? Herod, Herod the Great, okay? There were, there were a bunch of guys named Herod. It's hard to study some of this because a lot of these guys end up having the same name. They name each other. But Herod the Great is the king, and in, from, in, in um, 20 B.C., he does a major building project. Now, is he a God-fearer? He's not a good guy, guys. He's a bad, bad guy, but he's politically smart. He's trying to keep the Romans happy, and he's trying to keep the Jewish people happy. He's not a Jew himself. Do you know what he is? He's not exactly an Arab. It depends on how you define Arab. He's an Edomite. Okay? He's an Edomite, but he converts to Judaism for political power, makes, a, makes an agreement with the emperor of Rome, gets himself crowned as king, and then he wants to make the Jewish people happy, so he puts a bunch of work into the temple starting in 20, 20 B.C., and when is that temple completed? Do you remember when Jesus says it's taken 46 years to build this temple? Remember? Remember when he talks about it? Well, it's still not done at that point. You know what it's done? It's done in 60, six, about 63 AD, okay, when it's finally completed. And the temple stands in Jerusalem from 63. Actually, let's see some pictures of what's left of that. Go, ahead and put, go to the next slide. Do we have it there? Okay. Here, here is the building project that Herod um, performed with, with, with labor and money of the Jewish people, okay? Is there anybody in that picture that you recognize? That's the Wailing Wall, yeah. Okay, but anybody in that picture you recognize? There they are. Yeah, okay. Now, what I want you guys to see is the significance of this temple. You guys see, you see that there's, I don't know if you can see very well, but there's these, these bricks. Go back to the previous picture. You see how huge these stones are? Huge, huge stones. Now, go, to the, go, go back and go to the next picture now and see the stones on top. You see how much smaller those are? Okay, Th- those stones on top, they were put there by the, the Turks sometime around uh, t- 1,200, like 800 years ago or, or so. But you can see that the building project that Herod did was, was huge. 
And most of the wall is gone. This is the one part of the wall that's remaining. Okay? Is that interesting? Yes. So that's what's going on here. Now, here's the problem. That's, that's the history of the temple. But the situation of the temple, even though that seems pretty magnificent, the situation of the temple is not good. The situation of the temple is that the people who are controlling the temple are people who really don't have a right to control the temple from the people's point of view. Of course, God's sovereign over everything, but, over everything, but the people understand that the, that the rightful priest, the rightful high priest, is not the priest who's in charge at the time. And the only reason that they're in power and have control of the temple is because they've had a political alliance with the Romans. And there's this, you know, it goes right along with this prophecy from Malachi 3. So if you guys look in Malachi 3, what the, the Lord tells us that this is going to happen, that there's going to be craziness in the temple, and then he's going to purify it in a certain way. And we're going to read about that right now, okay? You guys want to read about it? Yeah. Please say yes. Thank you. Okay. So this prophecy in um, Malachi 3 says this. This is the Lord speaking. And he says, see, I will send my messenger. Who's the messenger? Who will prepare the way before me? John the Baptist, exactly. So this messenger, who is John the Baptist, is going to come before me, before the Lord comes, before the Lord comes to his temple. And then suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. Guess what? What we're reading about here in Luke is, exact, is a fulfillment of this. The Lord is in the temple. The Lord is in his temple. In physical form. The Lord is in his temple the messenger of the covenant, this is speaking of Jesus, whom you desire, the desired of all nations, the one that every heart of every person around the world has longed for, even though they don't understand that it's him that they're longing for, he's going to come to that temple, is what the prophecy says. Says the Lord Almighty. Verse 2 of Malachi 3. But who can endure the day of his coming? In other words, this day when the, when the Messiah shows up, when, when God shows up in his temple, what is going to happen? It's going to be a tough day. It's going to be a day that people are not going to be able to just stand up against. Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. You guys know what a refiner's fire is? You guys know what a fire is? Who's been burned? Who's been burned in the fire? I mean, you guys know it's like, it's like anything, anything that touches the fire burns, right? There's nothing that can stand against it. It's going to be like a launderer's soap. In other words, there's a purifying work that Messiah is going to bring when he shows up at the temple. And nothing is going to be able to withstand that, that cleaning he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites. Now, who are the Levites? That's, that's the whole temple sacrificial system community, the whole worship community that's all messed up. It says that Messiah is going to come, and he's going to refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings and righteousness. You guys just see the heart of the Lord here? Like, there's going to come a time when this temple is going to have true worship, God says. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. The prophecy is that in Jerusalem, at that place, there's going to come a time where the offerings are offered again. Where, uh, where worship happens the way that God always intended. When was the last time that, that worship happened on that spot in the temple, 70 AD, right? It's been a long time. And even then, it was all messed up. It was all messed up. Because the reason that it was messed up is because they didn't listen to Messiah. So, verse 5, so I will come to you for judgment. This is God speaking. God, in human form, 
comes to Jerusalem, comes to the temple for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers against those. Now, listen carefully. The Messiah is coming to Jerusalem to install the proper worship, and he's going to stand against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive aliens of justice but do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Guys, uh, just, just circle that right there. Just circle. I mean, what, what does he say? He's coming to fix injustice, to bring. You, you guys are frustrated with injustice. You guys have probably experienced injustice today. People that treated you unjustly. Things that you should have had that you couldn't have. You didn't get the grade on the test that you should have had. And you tried to explain it, the teacher didn't listen to you. Or, or maybe your boss didn't, you know, he accused you of something. You Whatever it is. There's all kinds of injustice happening on the earth. And Jesus is coming to bring about perfect justice. Perfect justice. But just notice, you know, this, this defrauding laborers of their wages and oppressing the widows and the fatherless and depriving aliens of justice. Guys, I mean, we, we, we need to think about what God's, what's in God's heart. What God cares about is bringing justice to all people. So Jesus has come. And he's in the temple ready to do this refining work. But he does it in a different way than maybe you might expect because he's actually coming two times. He came that first time, and he ends up refining the sacrificial system by being the sacrifice himself. He's coming again. He's in this, but here he is in the temple, and he's being treated like an outsider by people that took over his party, took over his house, took over his show. And here, so here's these disciples with him. Now think about the disciples. Where are these guys from? He's got 12 guys with him. 12 specific guys. Of course, he's got thousands of people that are following him. They're crammed to the temple listening. But he's got 12 specific guys that he's going to turn the world upside down with. Where are those guys from? Did I say it again? Galilee. Galilee. They're from Galilee. Where is he right now? Is he in Galilee? Where's Jerusalem? Jerusalem is in the south, right? Galilee's up in the north. These guys are, compared to the people in the south, they're considered like country bumpkins. I mean, these guys, they got, they got funny accents. They're fishermen, they're, they're day laborers, they're hard workers. They're, they're, and then you got all these, you know, like people in Jerusalem, that are, they're, you know, they, they're sophisticated. And every, every time there's a festival, all these country bumpkins end up showing up. And, of course, the people in Jerusalem don't mind too much because they do bring money. And so there's an economic reason. But these guys are not, they're not sophisticated people that, are, that Jesus is training. It's kind of like people at the Cornerstone, right? No, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. But, I mean, have you? You know, these guys are sitting there, and they're like, I mean, this is, this is the most grandiose building they've ever been in, except maybe the last time they were in Jerusalem. But, I mean, this is a magnificent building. And so they're checking out the building. That's what they're saying here. They love this amazing structure. And they're talking about how long it took to build this thing, how much work has been put into it, and how much money it's costing. I mean, and so they're talking. You guys notice that? They're talking about the temple. And it sounds like a really good thing, but I think they're going like, how much money is our, are our people spending on this building? I mean, Herod's taxing us. He's taking our money. He's, he's making us work for him to build this building. Is it really, really worth it? Okay. What I want you guys, what we're going to pull out of this th is three, three things quickly of what we see about Jesus' heart from this story, okay? So the first thing you guys write down, write this down. Jesus is more impressed. What we see in, the, in this account is that Jesus is more impressed by humility than by hierarchy. Wow, he's even got that up there. 
Okay, Jesus is more impressed by humility than hierarchy. Look at verse 45. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the teachers of the law. Okay, teachers of the law, modern day, modern day equivalent of the teachers of the law is? Lawyers. <laughs> yes, that's right. Teachers of this, the teachers of religious law. Okay, what's the equivalent? Pastors and Bible teachers like me. What Jesus is warning us, guys. Jesus is warning us in this, if, if we translate this in our modern world, word, world is to be careful of religious people who teach the Bible and pastors. People like me. I'm a pastor. What Jesus is saying, guys, is you guys need to be careful of Steve Hedlund and people like him. Watch out for him. Watch out for these people who are teaching. And you know what? Jesus knows what he's saying. And I kind of feel bad. I'm like, Jesus, don't pick on me. Don't be mean to me. I'm not that dangerous of a guy. But here's the deal. Am I that dangerous of a guy? The answer is yes, I am. I am just as dangerous as the religious leaders back there unless I realize that the point of all the scripture that we're learning, the point of all these meetings is to bring glory to God, not to me. Because look what Jesus says about them. He knows that these people, they're using their religious position to give, get advantage for themselves. And so what he's saying is, he, look, he says, he, he describes these guys. They like to walk around in their flowing robes. Now, what's the equivalent of this in the modern world of the flowing robes? I don't know, suit, whatever. I mean, obviously, you know, here's my pastor suit. <laughs> don't I look cool? I mean, I'm, I'm like trying to do everything I can to not do what Jesus is saying here. But do you guys know anybody who are any religious people that dress a certain way to show their prestige? In their, I mean, yeah, don't name any names, you know, but, but you guys, we know, uh, we've, been, we've been there. We've known these people. Okay, they love to walk around in flowing robes, and they love to be greeted in the marketplaces. What's the modern equivalent of being greeted in the marketplace? The mall. The mall, okay. But here, here's what it is. Okay, yeah, love to go to the mall. Man, I hate going to the mall. Whew. Now I know that I'm not like those religious leaders. Um, you know what I think it is? I think the idea, I think the modern equivalent is the business card. Like, hey, let me give you my business card. It shows where I went to seminary and what part, what mission I'm with and what church I lead. Sorry, I'm looking at, why, why am I looking at Mary? Sorry, Mary. Okay, I'm always picking on you, sorry. Um, you know what? Why do we do that? I mean, you guys do it too. Not just, not just religious leaders, but there's a, there's a greater danger when religious leaders do it than when just students do it. We do it with network. We, we want people to see us as the business card represents us. I mean, graduate of whatever seminary, okay? I mean, we want people to, we want, we want to use that so that people remember us and admire us. And maybe not all the time. I mean, I do have business cards. Has anybody ever, has, has anybody here have my business card? I, I've got a box of like, 400 that I think I've given, I give, I'll give like one out every year, you know? And here's the deal I said, I'm, tr I'm trying to put Jesus' words into effect here. That I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to be the person that, the, the religious leader that loves to be greeted in the marketplace where they're like, oh, Steve Hedlund. Okay? <laughs> I mean, some of you guys, some of you guys call me, how many of you guys call me Pastor. Okay, nobody here calls, some of, okay, some of you guys call me Pastor, um, Pastor Steve. Okay, you know what, I don't mind if you call me Pastor Steve, and when you call me Pastor Steve, you know what, it tells me a lot more about your upbringing and a level of respect in your heart than it does anything for me, and I don't care if you call me Pastor, 
but if it helps, you know, if, if there's, there's, there's a certain amount of respect. And I, you know, I, you notice I call Kat Chan, Kat Chan, and I call Miles Kuhn, Miles Kuhn, and I call Rin Kuhn, Rin Kuhn. I mean, I give these, these terms of respect because that's, you know, we're from Asia and we kind of think that way. What's that? Licky Kuhn, yeah, I call him Licky Kuhn. Um, that's right. I mean, there's, there's just stuff in, our, in, in some cultures that, that need to give respect to other people, right? But guys, I don't need that. I don't need you to call me pastor. In fact, when people walk in here, they're like, um, are, you the, are you the guy in charge here? I'm like, I'm just the guy that makes the burgers on Friday nights. <laughs> um, they're like, well, who's in charge? I'm like, who do you want to be in charge? You want, can you be in charge? Um, I mean, this, guys, this, this, is what, uh, this is what I think Jesus is getting at. That there's nothing special about me. I'm the, I'm the guy that teaches the Bible. I'm the guy that seeks to share the word of God with you. But all of you have a job to do within the kingdom of heaven that doesn't make me somehow like oh, I'm, I'm better than you. And let's just, some of you guys might call me Pastor Steve, and that's okay. But don't you ever call me Reverend Steve. <laughs> you know why? Because there's only one person to be revered, and that's not Steve. That's God. That's Jesus. He's the only one who deserves to be revered. Now, there's two people in the world who call me Reverend. One is Joe Ward. And I, and I know he's just joking. And the other is my tax lady. Because by, by being a reverend, I get some tax breaks. So when she sends, so once a year when she sends me my stuff, it says Reverend Stephen Hedlund. And I'm thinking, when am I going to tell her to stop using that? Because I'm not to be revered. Okay? Okay. You know, I had, we had a guy that came in here. He was coming to meet with me and Joe. And uh, it was his first time in the building. He was coming to talk to me about doing ministry with us. And... Uh, so that was in our coffee shop. Was in there. I'm like, hey, let me get you coffee. He's like, okay. So we walked down there, and Bethany was working in the, in the counter. You were working in the counter. I don't know if you remember. I hope you don't remember because then you don't. I don't want you to hold it against the guy. But she's working in the counter in there, and I'm I'm like, hey, Bethany, this is Doctor. I'll just use this. I'll just call him. I'm sorry, Mister. I said, Bethany, this is this is Mister Bob. We'll call him Mister Bob. And um, he says, that's Doctor. Do you remember this? <laughs> and I'm like. I thought he was joking. I'm like, oh, okay, sorry, Dr. Bob. It's not, that wasn't his real name. He said, you know, I worked really hard for that. I thought, okay, you want to do ministry with me? I'm thinking, we, if you want to do ministry with me, we all, everybody starts ministry here by cleaning the toilet. I mean, me too. I mean, you guys want to do ministry with me? Start doing it. You don't need a title, toilet cleaner. I am, I'm Betsy, toilet cleaner. I mean, no, no, it's like, we're, uh, what? Doctor toilet, doctor, doctor Steve toilet cleaner. I mean, here's the deal, guys. This is a kingdom of servants. We're, we're, Jesus, Jesus sets the perfect example of servanthood. He is such a servant. He washes the feet of people who abandoned him that night. And he dies for those people that abandoned him. We're servants. Okay. They like to walk around in flowing robes. They like to be greeted in the marketplace and hand out their business cards. Pastor Steve, Reverend Steve. They like to be called doctor. And verse 47. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most Severely. Sound like Jesus a little upset? Jesus is upset. Now, is there anything wrong with making? Is there anything wrong with making lengthy prayers? There's nothing wrong with it. 
Nothing wrong with making lengthy prayers, but have you ever prayed and realized that you were more concerned about what everybody in the room thought about you than what you thought God was thinking about you? I confess to you, my friends at the Cornerstone, that I've done that. I've done that too many times. And the Lord is setting me free from that. He's setting some of you free from that too. My, the, probably the biggest sin, my biggest, the biggest sin that I've dealt with in my life is the concern about what people think about me. I'm done with it, guys. But I'm done with it in the sense that an alcoholic is done with alcohol. It's like I, I, I have to continually say, who cares what they think about me? Some like me, some don't. It doesn't matter that much. And it's hard to get to that point. It's really hard to get to that point because, truthfully, I want you guys to like me. But you know what? When we find ourselves praying or doing ministry or dressing a certain way or, or trying to make ministry good or talking a certain way because we're trying to impress people more than God, then we're falling into the people, the category of people that Jesus is talking about here who will be severely punished. You know why? I mean, you know, everybody, everybody deals with this kind of thing. But you know why it's so much worse when a pastor does it? Because, yeah, well, because we lead other people to do it. But if you do anything as a believer, if you, are, if you steal glory for yourself because of Jesus' name, then what you're doing is you are disobeying the, the third commandment. You guys know what the third commandment is? What's the third commandment? First commandment. First commandment is no other gods before me. Second commandment is no idols. Third commandment is do not, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain because the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. God is serious about people that put their name on themselves and then misrepresent him. And that's exactly what's happening in Jerusalem. In fact, in Jeremiah, we're not going to look there, but in Jeremiah, he talks about this house that bears my name. My name. God says, remember what God's, when we talk about God's name, what is, we're talking about his identity, his character. You guys are people who have the name of Jesus written on you. You have the, the name Christian on you. You call yourself a Christian, then everything that you do that misrepresents his name includes you in this category of people that Jesus says they will be severely punished. Now, praise God that there is forgiveness for all of our mess-ups. But the reason that God is so serious about using his temple, this temple, this temple, in a way that, that misrepresents him is because the nations laugh at him because of us. Okay, it's name dropping. You guys know what name dropping is? Yeah. It's like, yeah, me and Gary, we were talking about, you know, we are talking about doing some stuff together. It's like, yeah, yeah, me and him, we're like that, you know. Okay, I mean, you guess you guys, some of you guys know that I used to live in Hollywood, right? In Hollywood, I, was, I went to, is anybody, I went to you know, the Guitar Institute in Hollywood, best guitar school in the world, and, um, you know, we love to drop names. It's like, yeah, I was talking to John and Dino. I was in the studio with them the other day, and we were working on the Petra album, you know. I mean, that really happened to me, right? I was working, you know, in the, in the studio with John Elefante, and Dino Elefante. Actually, you don't even know those names, because those are names that are long gone. It's like, who is that? But, um, but back in the day, you know, we used all the names, yeah. Yeah, we're the, you know, they're Bill, Bill Bumgard, he's, he's helping us with our, all these names. And why do we do that? Because we're taking the fame that they have, 
and trying to apply it to ourselves to make people think better of us. That's using the name of the Lord in vain. Anybody, anybody notice the business cards that have fish symbols on them? You guys know what I'm talking about? Why do people put fish symbols on their business cards? To sell to other Christians, I suppose so. I mean, I don't know. You know what? I don't know what the motivation is. Is it possible that somebody puts a fish symbol on their business card because they really do want to honor the name of Jesus? Sure. Sure, possibly. I mean, I don't know. If they put John 3.16 on the back of the business card, maybe, maybe they really are, want honor Jesus. I don't know. But if, here's the danger. If you put John 3.16 on your business card or on your sign out in front of your business, out of a desire to, you think by doing that I'm going I'm to make a little more money? then you're using God's name in vain. And that's what's going on here. And we've all done it. Okay. So what, there's one more thing that these, Jesus is accusing these people of. They devour widows' houses. They're devouring widows' houses. What's that all about? He's criticizing these leaders who run the religious system because they're devouring widows' houses. What is, how does the Bible define true religion? James? Somebody said James. James 1.27, right? James 1.27 defines what pure religion should be. Pure and undefiled religion is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. You guys want to know whether, whether somebody's doing true religion or not? If somebody's doing true religion, true religion, real devotion to God, then it's going to be, it's going to, the outcome is going to be that people in need are going to be blessed by them and they're going to live lives that are unpolluted by the world. Does that make sense? So when Jesus is talking about devouring widows' houses, what he's saying is these people, you know what they, how they built this temple? They built this temple with money that they ended up using, they, they set up the temple system that helped make them rich. The, t the temple priests in Jerusalem who controlled this thing were wealthy beyond belief. And just so happens that there in the middle of Jesus' talking, there's a widow that is putting money in the offering box. You guys see that? Okay, so first of all, Jesus is more interested in humility than hierarchy. Secondly, when it comes to money, here's what I want you guys to see. Second thing, write, write this down. Second thing is Jesus is more impressed by motivation than in the destination of the money. Here's what I want you guys to see. Does Jesus agree with the system that's going on here at the temple? No. He don't agree with it. But look how he responds to this woman who's given to the temple. As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And all of us go, oh, that's so sweet. Right? And we always think about, yeah, come on, all together now. Oh, that's so sweet. Okay. Okay, we all think, that, oh, that's so, that's so sweet that she's given money to God. Is she giving money to God? It's kind of a trick question, right? Where is that money going to go? You, you can't believe how, when, when the Romans finally overthrew Jerusalem. You know why the temple got torn down? Why did the temple get torn down in 70 AD? Does anybody know? It was made out of gold, exactly. 
I mean, Titus, Titus was, the, was the general who later became the emperor, and he tried to stop them from tearing the temple down. He tried to stop them. The people went berserk. There was so much wealth in that temple, so much gold in that temple, that they, when they, the temple, they set the temple on fire, and the, the fire melted the gold that went down into the cracks between the stones, and they tore every stone apart to be able to get that gold. There was so much money in there. And you guys have heard of, um, of Titus's arch in, uh, in, in Rome, where Titus goes back to Rome and builds this huge arch, and he, he brings the wealth of the nations from Jerusalem to Rome. There's so much wealth there. Okay, and here's this woman put it in two coins, and Jesus says, she's given to something that is that misrepresents my name, but what she's doing, she's doing to God. She's given everything she has. And here, here's, here's what I want us to get from this, is that, you know, some of us, we get, we get, her motivation is right. The destination of that money is not right. Now here's what I want you guys, us to learn. Is you, you guys are here because you're growing into men and women of God who are going to change the world. That's why you're here, by the way. That's what we're talking about. That's why I'm leading you. You're becoming men and world-changing men and women of God. And as you think about how you spend your money and who you give to, there's a tendency, especially in America where everybody's independent, to think, I don't, I don't think I'm going to give my money to that church because I can't believe they spend free money on free burgers for college students who don't even care. Oh, that's right, Joe. I mean, and you know what? What everybody, what everybody seems to do, what we're all tempted to do, is to decide whether we're going to give to God based on how the recipients of that money use the money. You know what? The Bible doesn't give us that, that choice. We don't, give, we don't give to God because the students at UTA need hamburgers. We give to God as a matter of our, a statement of our devotion to him. Do you guys understand that? And it's, here's, here's what I want you guys to remember, and you can probably write this down, is that you can give money to God without giving him your heart. But you can't give God your heart without giving him your money too. It's impossible. You can't do it. And it's not your responsibility to, 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 to make sure that all that money that you give is spent the best way. Because I can, I can guarantee you that there's, there's mismanagement of money in every church, in every household, in every one of your pockets also. Okay? You don't have to judge. You give out of a devotion to God. Okay? I'm speaking to some of you tonight. Okay? Third thing that matters to Jesus that I want you guys to see. So first of all, um, hum humility matters more than hierarchy. Second one was um, when it comes to money, Jesus is more impressed by motivation than the destination of that money. And third and last, and we're going to end here real quick, is Jesus is more impressed about values than volume, okay? Okay, let me ask you guys this question. Well, look at verse 4. All these people gave out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty all that she had to live on. Okay, would you guys rather, here's the question, big question tonight. Better answer right. Okay, would you guys rather have... 100% of Morgan's money. Would you rather have 100% of Morgan's money or one-tenth of 1% of Bill Gates' money? How rude! Poor Morgan! You guys are so mean! Because she didn't want to give you her money anyway, right? She's not giving it to you. Keep it in your pocket. Nobody's going to be asking for money. Okay, here's the deal. All of you, all of you would rather have one-tenth of one percent of Bill Gates' money than have all of Morgan's money. Why is that? We need 
Because the yeah, there you go. Because the volume, the volume is what matters to you. You don't care about Bill Gates' heart towards you. You might care a little about Morgan's heart, but it don't matter because you don't have any money anyway. Right? But when it comes to God, what, which would God rather have? Would God rather have one-tenth, one percent of Bill Gates' money or all of Morgan's? What does God want? What, God, what matters to God is not the volume. What matters to God is her values, what she cares about. Because this is what God wants from me. Here, here's the deal. You don't give to God because he doesn't, he, he doesn't have enough money. Oh, poor God, I better get... Okay, we're going to pass an offering play here, and let's see. One for me, one for you, one for me, one for you. Guys, God is not crying because you didn't give money. He can make $50 bills anytime he wants. That's not how he does things, by the way. He uses people like you to get his work done in the world, but it's not like he doesn't know how to get money when he needs it. Do you guys understand? You don't give to God money because he needs it. And, and therefore, what God wants from you is not, it's not the volume. It's, the how you, it's how you represent your value of him and how you spend your money. And whether you give 100% of your money, which ends up to two bucks like this woman did, or whether you're like the rich dudes who happen to throw in a couple extra million out of their wealth. The way that you spend money will, 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 be demonst will demonstrate how you feel about him. Okay, so just as we're closing, here's what I want to ask you guys. How much of your life does Jesus want? How much of your time, you guys all have the same amount of time, Tomorrow, the next day, how much of your time does Jesus want? How much of your money? How much of your affection? You know what Jesus wants? He wants it all. And he's not satisfied with anything but all. And if you thought you could give him a few bucks here and a few bucks there to keep him happy, show up to church once a month, maybe go to, go to a small group once in a while, sing a few songs, yes, he's not interested in that kind of relationship. He's not interested in that. Just like, I mean, Joe's not interested in Kiana giving him a phone call once a week. He wants to marry her, right? He wants, he wants her devotion to him. That's what God wants from you. How much of you does God have? And how much of what you have in your life? And he, and he gives you your life. He gives you the opportunity to make the choice. How much of your life are you going to keep back from him tonight? Jesus cares about you. He's inviting you to give yourself fully to him. Guys, let's just um, stand up. We're going to pray. We're going to close. Father, we're just asking that you'll help us. Lord, we don't know even how to do this. We're, we, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to give you more. And I need your help. We all need your help. And so, Lord, just tonight, here is people who uh, love you. We recognize that we don't love you enough. Would you teach us? And would you take these little pennies of ours, the things that we do have, and use them for your glory. All that we have, all of our lives, all of our money, all of our affection, all of our energy. And Lord, that the, tonight will just be a celebration of that, letting go, letting you have it all. Some of you guys tonight need to make a decision to the Lord for the first time, saying, God, I'll give you myself. I surrender all to you. I surrender my future to you. I trust you. The Lord's question to you guys tonight is, do you trust me? And, of course, our response every day is, yeah, Lord, I trust you, but what are you going to do about my 
future. What are you going to do about my job? And he says, well, do you trust me? And you say, yeah, I trust you, Lord, but what about, what about my situation with my brother? What, do you, what about my situation with my car? What do you do about my, my visa situation? And God's response to you is, will you trust me? Will you trust me? And so, Lord, we just, we're not very good at it. And at least we say, Lord, we want to trust you. Here are our lives. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, we're done. Tomorrow we're going camping. Don't forget your sleep.